we've had some uh, malfunctions here. Paul, can you hear me, my friend? Yes, I can hear you. All right. Okay. Yeah, my uh, my my comics won't turn on, but uh, be that as it may, just want to just mention that uh, we're in the month of January still. Remember, the month of January is dedicated to the holy name of Jesus. So remember that. I got a couple of uh, items that I want to mention. Then we'll look at today's gospel. And we're going to be talking today with, with Paul. We're going to be talking about what St. Thomas Aquinas says about immigration. I think he would be very interested. And then we want to talk about the just war theory because it looks like the Holy See would like to scrap the just war theory. So we're going to take a look at it and see is the just war theory, is it is it immoral in itself? But uh, <clears throat> before we do, let me just mention some of the things that are happening around the country. Number one, California's homeless people are found living in filthy caves. There's an article that just came out. It said, homeless people are living in caves 20 feet below the ground. The homeless crisis in California is so awful that people are undertaking extreme and unusual measures to obtain shelter thanks to the state's Democrats and Biden's garbage economy. As CBS News Sacramento reported Wednesday, multiple filthy homeless caves tucked along the Tulumi were discovered and cleared out by volunteer groups and the Modesto Police Department last weekend. The caves were found across the street from Crater Avenue, roughly 20 feet below street level, and are accessible via makeshift stairs built into the hillside. The Modesto Police released a statement on Facebook revealing that 7,600 pounds of trash were removed and the area has been ridden with illegal camps for a while. Next. Alaska Airlines is being sued by two Christian former employees who claim they were subjected to religious discrimination for opposing woke company politics. The airline has already been making headlines after one of its plane doors uh, flew, uh, blew off mid-flight, and the former flight attendants, Marty Brown and Lacey Smith, say the company encouraged them to engage in open and critical dialogue regarding the Equality Act but fired them for criticizing its far-left political activism on LGBTQ issues. The lawsuit claims the women were fired for being Christians who hold traditional Christian beliefs, including the belief that everyone should be treated with kindness and the belief that there are only two sexes. Next on the news, Bishop Strickland to deliver keynote address at CPAC 2024 Ronald Reagan dinner. Matt Schlapp on social media last week said, quote, we are honored to have this courageous Catholic leader take this important role, said, con said the conference organizer. Also on the news, Trump acknowledges Catholic vote endorsement. That's a huge endorsement, catholicvote.com. Uh, and so the question is, why would Catholic vote says, why would any Catholic vote for a Democrat? Brian Burst, the president of Catholic Vote, uh, put that out on social media. He says, we're also grateful to be endorsed by, uh, or pre former President Trump said, I'm also grateful to be endorsed by one of the nation's largest Catholic advocacy groups, Catholic Vote, uh, said the Republican frontrunner. And finally, struggling for recruits, the U.S. Navy lowers education standard 
Those who didn't hmm. graduate from high school will be allowed to join the Navy's ranks. Members of the U.S. Navy welcome aircraft carrier, welcome aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan as she arrives at the U.S. Navy base in Yosuka, a suburb of Tokyo. So it looks like they're uh, they're relaxing the standards. Okay, let's talk about the good news today. Today's holy gospel. Let me let me share today's gospel because that is about the only good news that doesn't change. Everything else in life seems to change. Everything's in flux except the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can hang your hat on that forever. Today's gospel, Mark chapter 5, verse 23 to 43. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and he stayed close to the sea. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came forward. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her, that she may get well and live. He went off with him, and a large crowd followed him. Notice when people see Jesus Christ in the New Testament, what's the automatic reaction? They fall down either on their face or they fall down on their knees. That's, uh, that's why as Catholics, uh, we're kneeling most of the time during Mass, especially in the Latin Mass. And that's why when you go to adoration, most people are just kneeling in adoration. There's nothing to do when you're in the presence of Christ but just worship him. The gospel says, there was a woman afflicted with hemorrhages for 12 years. She has suffered greatly at the hands of many doctors and has spent all that she had. Yet she was not helped, but only grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. She said, if I but touch his clothes, I shall be cured. Immediately her flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction Jesus, aware at once that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and asked, Who has touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see how the crowd is pressing upon you, and yet you ask, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. The woman, realizing what had happened to her, approached in fear and trembling. She fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be cured of your affliction. So notice what Jesus Christ said. He didn't say your faith alone has saved you. He said your faith has saved you. Why? Because she actually took actions. She looked at Jesus. She said, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. He can heal me. So she reaches out to touch him. So she, she made a physical gesture out of her own free will. She wasn't just a passive uh, recipient of Christ's healing power. She actively sought out and touched him knowing that power would come forth from him. Again, that's what we as Catholics call, that, that, that type of faith is called, uh, you know, faith working in love. Or as the Bible says here, she was working out her faith in, in fear and trembling. And then it says, well, he was still speaking. People from the synagogue officials house arrived and said, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Disregarding the message that was reported, Jesus said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid, just have faith. By the way, that phrase is used over 300 times in the Bible, in the 73 books of the Bible. Do not be afraid is found well, well over 300 times in Scripture. That seems to be the golden thread of sacred Scripture. It says, disregarding the message that was reported, Jesus said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid, but just have faith. He did not allow anyone to accompany him inside except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. 
When they arrived at the house of the synagogue official, he caught sight of a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So he went in and said to them, why this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but asleep. And they ridiculed him. Then he put them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the, chi- the room where the child was. He took the child by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Guess what? That's going to happen one day to all of us at the general judgment. Jesus Christ is going to come back down from heaven to earth. And he's going to say, arise. And all the graves will open up. I hope you're in the state of grace with you guys. We'll be right back. We're back to Terry and Jesse show. I got my partner, Paul Clay. Terry's out doing some apostolic work. Paul, St. Thomas Aquinas, the, the greatest theologian that's him and St. Augustine, the two, the two pillars of Catholicism. He has a lot to say about immigration. Uh, this article is put together by Dr. John Horvat, a friend of the show. Paul, can you share what he has to say? Sure. Good morning, Jess, again. Good morning. <laughs> yeah. The article's called, What Does St. Thomas Say About Immigration? And here's yeah, what it says. Yeah, we need to hear what St. Thomas has to say. Yep. In looking at the debate over immigration, it is almost automatically assumed that the church's position is one of unconditional charity toward those who enter the nation legally or illegally. However, is this the case? What does the Bible say about immigration? What do church doctors or theologians say? Above all, what does the greatest of doctors, St. Thomas Aquinas, say about immigration? Does his opinion offer some insights to the burning issues now, shaking the nation and blurring the national borders? Immigration is a modern problem, and so some might think that the medieval St. Thomas would have no opinion about the problem, and yet, He does. One has only to look in his masterpiece, the Summa Theologica, in the first part of the the second part, question 105, article 3, there there one finds his analysis based on biblical insights that can add to the national debate. They are entirely applicable to the present. Anything biblical just is applicable. It does not expire. St. Thomas, man's relations with foreigners are twofold, peaceful and hostile. And in directing both kinds of relation, the law contains suitable precepts. And the commentary is, in making this affirmation, St. Thomas affirms that not all immigrants are equal. Every nation has the right to decide which immigrants are beneficial, that is peaceful, to the common good. As a matter of self-defense, the state can reject those criminal elements, traitors, enemies, and others who it deems harmful or hostile to its citizens. Let me make the a comment. Second... Let me make yeah, a comment. Sure. Okay. And, and that commentary there that comments on what St. Thomas Aquinas says. That's exactly what former President Donald Trump, he said 
And he took a lot of heat for that. And I had no problem with it. And I'm an American of Mexican descent. He goes, a lot of people crossing the border are criminals or bad people. Guess what? That's true. That's a true statement. Not everybody that's coming over there, coming from over there, is a daily mass, uh, daily communicant, daily rosary Catholic. You got some bad people. And, and Dr. Horvat commenting on St. Thomas, he, he's saying, yes, of course the state can reject criminal elements coming over. I mean, for Pete's sake, a movie came out not too long ago, Paul. Did you watch it, The Sound of Freedom? Yeah, I did. Okay. <laughs> The Sound of Freedom says everything you need to know. That was directed by a Mexican production company, okay? Catholic actor and director Eduardo Verastegui and Alejandro Monteverde. And uh, they basically exposed the horrible uh, problems in the border as a result of the cartels. Here's what the movie showed, four things. Mexico's the largest exporter of child sex trafficking in the world, number one. Number two. The U.S., no surprise, is the largest consumer of child sex trafficking. Does that surprise you? When a former president of the United States, Bill Clinton, says, I prefer them young, okay? Number three, 80% of women that come across the southern border are raped. And after the women are raped, the Mexican cartels hang the underwear of the victim and the bra on a tree branch or bush. I know people that live in Tucson, there are thousands and thousands of women's underwear and bras hanging on trees in the deserts of the United States Southwest Territory. Compliments of the Democrat Party and, and, and the Mexican cartels. And number four, get this, human trafficking is an $150 billion business. The movie Sound of Freedom is exposing what Jeffrey Epstein was doing in, in his Epstein Island this is truly an international diabolical problem. Continue, Paul. Yes. Um, the second thing he affirms is that the manner of dealing with immigration is determined by law in the cases of both beneficial and hostile immigration. The state has the right and the duty to apply its law. Huh. That one says and it all, right? Right then and there, Jess. Yeah, and, and by the way, that's that's even repeated in Vatican II, paragraph 2241 of the Catechism. That phrase is repeated in Vatican II. And I guess a lot of the bishops just don't even read their own documents because any bishop that's an open border bishop has not read St. Thomas, has not read the Church on Immigration, or even Vatican II. What else does St. Thomas say, Paul? Yeah. Uh for the Jews were offered three opportunities of peaceful relations with foreigners. First, when foreigners passed through their land as travelers. Secondly, when they came to dwell in their land as newcomers. And both of the and in both these respects, the law made kind provision in its precepts. For it is written, and this is Exodus 22, 21, thou shalt not molest a stranger. And again, in Exodus 22, verse 9, thou shalt not molest a stranger. So, yeah, that's pretty clear. The commentary here is uh, St. Thomas acknowledges the fact that others will want to come to visit or even stay in the land for some time. Such foreigners deserve to be treated with charity, respect, and courtesy. 
which is due to any human of goodwill. In these cases, the law can and should protect foreigners from being badly treated or molested. Thirdly, yeah, that that's Christian charity. That's 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 obvious. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah. Thirdly, when any foreigners wish to be admitted entirely into their fellowship and mode of worship, notice and mode of worship with regard to these, a certain order was observed for they were not at once admitted to citizenship, just as was law with some nations that no one was deemed a citizen except two or three generations as, uh, you know. So, Jess, I just have a comment on this. Yeah. Number one, Islamic caliphates, right? They set up uh, a caliphate, which basically makes it almost impossible to have foreign religions practiced and worshipped on their right. soil. And we automatically, as Americans, we look at that and says, how dare them? You know, they're intolerable. But yet Islam is the fastest growing religion on planet Earth. There's something to be said, and I believe that they, you know, this idea of uh, when you look at the the history of our church, when we had the, the you know the papal states, and there was no real separation between the state and the church, um, that is how the religion spread. When you have a bunch of people who are not like-minded coming together, as an example here, we we still, even though we're not a Christian nation. We have the remnants of Christianity still left. When when we open up our borders and let people flow in with different ideologies, they demand, uh, they want Sharia law, as an example, the Islamic people. They don't want to assimilate into society. And that's important. Uh, if you don't want to come uh, to this country to be part of America, to be part of, and it's unfortunate, like I said, it's unfortunately that I can't, I can say that we can't call ourselves a Christian nation anymore. But uh, initially, that was, in fact, uh, the situation, because at least the large majority of the people here were united under a somewhat common faith. Yeah, right. Uh, one nation under God. It, it was the God of the Trinity. It was the God yes. who was Father, yes. Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, what's St. Thomas's third point, Paul? The third point. Thirdly, when any foreigners wish to be... Uh, yeah, we had, we had read that one, Jess. So uh, St. Thomas recognizes that there will be those who will want to stay and become citizens of the lands they visit. However, he sets... Uh, as the first condition for acceptance, a desire to integrate fully into what would today be considered the culture, life, and life of a nation. I can't stress to you how important this is, Jess, because again, when you take a bunch of people together and you mix them together, and by the way, if you notice, Jess, uh, this idea of separation of church and state, when the state is no longer coupled together with uh, uh, people of faith, and in this case, the church, the two sword theory, when, when there's that division, then the state begins to invoke laws that are unjust. And one of the laws that they, you know, they, uh, that they begin to practice is this, this idea of religious 
tolerance, right? Everybody can believe how they want to believe. I know as Americans, that sounds like, yeah, that's right. That's all right. We have, no, there's only one God, okay? And therefore, there are false religions out there, and it is not their right to come and worship freely uh, in a nation that is centered and focused on the one true God. Now, again, I know I'm talking the past, but this is where uh, basically Christendom, this is why I always say Christendom has fallen. Uh, they have dismantled Christendom brick by brick by brick, and we only have what's what I call the remnants of, of Christianity left in America today. Well, I'll give you an example, Paul, of what you're saying is uh, yeah. France is the daughter of Catholicism. It's a second Catholic country. And yeah. today, France, it's being Islamicized. Yes. Uh, Catholic churches are being attacked. They're left and right. Uh, Muslims go in and disrupt the mass. That would have never happened when, when, when France was at the height of its glory and when, when France proclaimed themselves as a Catholic nation. But now that France has disintegrated, like most of, the, most of the West, into secular nations, and they no longer, Christ is no longer king of France, uh, this is what we have. Islam sees yep. the weakness because in Islam, the church and the state are wedded. In yep. Catholicism, and I would have to say because of Protestantism, they're the ones that have destroyed this possibility because of Protestant Christianity. Now they've made it nearly impossible for Catholicism to, to apply the two-sword theory. Protestants, in fact, when Muslims were attacking Catholics in the Middle Ages, Protestants were on the side of the Muslims, hoping they destroyed us. We'll be back. Jesus, not, uh, Terry and Jesse show, we'll be right back talking about St. Thomas and immigration. Thomas Aquinas say about immigration, he says a whole lot. He's, a second condition is that the granting of citizenship would not be immediate. The integration process takes time. People need to adapt themselves to the nation. He quotes the philosopher Aristotle as saying this process was once deemed to take two or three generations. St. Thomas himself does not give a time frame for this integration, but he does admit that it did take a long time. St. Thomas, remember, was writing during the time of the Holy Roman Empire. And so there was a strict criteria. You wanted to be part of the Holy Roman Empire. And if you're a Muslim or a Jew, they didn't give you citizenship right away. They made sure that you converted and you accepted Christ as king. And so this is why St. Thomas, he's writing from a 12th and 13th century standpoint under the Holy Roman Empire, which is something that kept Christianity unified. But today, that two-sword theory, uh, I don't think... I don't think we'll ever be able to apply it here in America. When you even have Catholic presidents like John F. Kennedy says, I'm not going to listen to what the Pope says. And you have Joe Biden, who basically also, uh, you know, gives the birdie to the to the uh, to the perennial teachings of the Catholic Church as well. Our second, quote unquote, Catholic president. I don't think we're ever going to see the two sword theory here in the U.S. St. Thomas also says the reason for this was that if foreigners were allowed to meddle 
with the affairs of a nation as soon as they settled down in its midst, many dangers might occur, since the foreigners, not yet having the common good, firmly at heart might attempt something hurtful to the people. You think? You see what's mm -hmm. happening in Spain and, and France with, with Muslim enclaves attacking yep. Catholic churches? Uh, yep. You know, basically having complete contempt for French and Spanish law? Yep. The commentary here from Dr. Horvath, he says, the common sense of St. Thomas is certainly not politically correct, but it is logical. The theologian notes that living in a nation is a complex thing. It takes time to know the issues affecting the nation. Those familiar with the long history of their nation are in the best position to make the long-term decisions about its future. It is harmful and unjust to put the future of a place in the hands of those recently arrived who, although through no fault of their own, have little idea of what is happening or what has happened in the nation. Such a policy could lead to the destruction of a nation. Mm. As an illustration of this point, St. Thomas knows that Jewish people did not treat all nations equally since those nations closer to them were more quickly integrated into the population than those who were not as close. Some hostile peoples were not to be admitted at all into full fellowship due to their enmity towards the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Want to see an example of that? You see the, the illegal immigration problem. Some states in the country are saying, some of the blue states are saying that they're going to allow the illegal immigrants to vote in the 2024 election. That's exactly what St. Thomas Aquinas warned us against. People who recently arrived, they don't know the happening of that nation. And, and so their vote could actually lead to the destruction of the nation. Paul, what's the next comment from St. Thomas? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just taking in what you just said, Jess. I can't believe there are states contemplating allowing them to vote. And I also know there are states who are allowing them to become police officers. How and join the, the military. World, and join yeah, the military. How, how, how in the world... When your status is lawbreaker, law violator, do you all of a sudden become an enforcer of the law and tell its citizens what the law is supposed to say? Anyway, St. Thomas, nevertheless, it is possible by dispensation for a man to be admitted to citizenship on account of some act of virtue. Thus, it is related. And this is in uh, Judah 14, 6, that uh, Ankior, the captain of the children of Ammon, was joined to the people of Israel with all the succession of his kindred. This is to say the rules were not rigid. There were exceptions that were granted based on the circumstances. However, such exceptions were not arbitrary, but always had a mind had in mind the common good. The example of Ankior describes the citizenship bestowed upon the captain and his children for the good services rendered to the nation. Go ahead and continue. Okay. These are some of the thoughts of St. Thomas Aquinas on the matter of immigration based on biblical principles. It is clear that immigration must have two things in mind. The first is the nation's unity. And the second is the common good. Immigration mm -hmm. should have as its goal integration, not disintegration. 
or segregation. The immigrant should not only desire to assume the benefits, but the responsibilities of joining into the full fellowship of the nation. By becoming a citizen, a person becomes part of a broad family over the long term and not a shareholder in a joint stock company seeking only short-term self-interest. Mm. Yeah, I like that. St. Thomas teaches that immigration must have in mind the common good. It cannot destroy or overwhelm a nation. And that's what we're this, seeing right now, Paul, south of the border. We're being yeah. overwhelmed in Texas, Arizona, yes. and California, yes. those three border states. Yes. Uh, this, this is something that we've never seen in the history of this country. This is yeah. unregulated, unchecked illegal immigration. Yeah, and, and we've yes. never seen these type of numbers before, Paul. And again, yeah, I'm telling you, not all the people coming over are rosary, daily rosary, mass attending Catholics. Is yeah. it a, is it a wonder that 95% of the people coming over are males between 18 and 35, military age? Yeah, they're not coming over with their families. That's uh that's that's a sobering thought. Just let's not forget the fact that even within the country, we have our own problems. We have roving gangs that are uh, overwhelming uh, stores, uh, stealing. Uh, no. Well, yeah. So we're not enforcing any laws. And so what do you think is going to happen when we insert a bunch of people who have a completely uh, different background and we mix us all together? That sounds like it's a... It's it's ready to explode. That's like just mixing an unholy cocktail that's ready to bust, Jess. And I and I don't know if that's by design or they're just that ignorant. But um, we're in trouble. Like I always say, we're circling the drain here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, the article. If you, if you could wrap it up, what's the, the last three sections there? This explains why so many Americans experience uneasiness caused by massive and disproportional immigration. Such policy artificially induces a situation that destroys common points of unity and overwhelms the ability of a society to absorb new elements organically into a unified culture. The common good is no longer considered. This is such common sense stuff. And yet, uh, uh, the leaders of our country just don't seem to get it. A proportional immigration has always been healthy, a healthy development in a society since it injects new life and new qualities into a social body. But when it loses that proportion and undermines the purpose of the state, it threatens the well-being of the nation. That's what uh, pres uh, former President Trump has been saying for I don't know how long. When this happens, the nation would do well to follow the advice of St. Thomas Aquinas and biblical principles. The nation must practice justice, charity, and charity towards all, including foreigners, but it must above all safeguard the common good and its unity, without which no country can long endure. A nation, Jess, without borders is no nation. What part of that don't they get? Paul, and I'll, and I'll tell you, when, when people talk about, 
you know, these, uh, oh, building a fence, that's racist. You know, you're racist. Are you kidding me? Yeah. The, the, the fact is, when when the Jews were were set free by the Persian king Cyrus, and he allowed the Jews to go back home from Babylon to Jerusalem, uh, one of the things that uh, Nehemiah, the governor, he told the Jews to build the wall. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, when the wall was finished within 52 days, when all our enemies heard about it and all the surrounding nations had seen it, they were deeply impressed and acknowledged that this work had been done and accomplished by the power of our God. So the Jews built the wall around Jerusalem, and Nehemiah the prophet says, yep, everybody around us said, yep, this is the work of God. You also find in, in the book of Revelation, okay, people never had never thought about that. Heaven is called the new Jerusalem, and guess what? <laughs> Heaven it has walls. great high <laughs> walls. It's right in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> it says in Revelation 21, 12, Heaven, New Jerusalem, had it had a great high wall, 12 gates, at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. Okay, so let me ask a question. What's the purpose of these walls that are surrounding heaven, the new Jerusalem, the city of God? The Bible answers the question. It says to keep out the dogs, the sorcerers, the liars, and the cowards in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14. So it tells you why heaven has gates, to keep out bad people. So the fact yeah. of the matter is, if God told Nehemiah, build the wall in Jerusalem, when they were rescued from Babylon, from Babylonian captivity, and the Son of God has erected uh, walls around the city of God in, he in heaven, I think walls are a good thing. In fact, the White House has huge walls, huge, two fences as a line of defense to protect the president. Yeah. There was only one fence. Under Barack Obama, they put a second fence. <laughs> oh, we'll be right back. We're going to talk about the just war theory. Is it just or is it unjust? Let's check it out. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. The question is, is war in itself immoral? These are real ethical questions that war today poses, but these questions are not new. The Catholic Church has been dealing with these questions for a long, long time. However, a few weeks ago, January 14th, during Pope Francis' his, uh, his Angelus remarks, he uttered a sentence that deserves thorough analysis. And as the author, Dr. Grandelsky, he writes, and in my view is deeply problematic. Dr. Grandelsky writes, talking about military conflict across the world, particularly in Ukraine, Palestine, and Israel, Pope Francis said, quote, in other words, today war 
is in itself a crime against humanity, close quote. <laughs> so, wow. Dr. Grandolski asks, what did Francis mean? Well, to adapt Cardinal Pell's phrase, rest in peace, uh, instead of the old axiom, Rome has spoken, the matter is settled. St. Augustine quoted, used to say that. Well, now Cardinal Pell is saying, Francis has spoken, the confusion grows. <laughs> unlike uh, unlike St. Augustine, Rome has spoken. Yep. The matter is settled. Yep. So is war in itself a crime against humanity? Such a statement is utterly alien to the Catholic moral tradition, which speaks of just war. Yeah. If there is such a thing as a just war, war cannot be in itself evil. That is not to deny that war has bad consequences and should be avoided, if possible. But that is a profoundly different thing from saying war itself is always wrong. And I'll tell you, Paul White, war is not always wrong. I'll just say, I'm going to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1, uh, verses 3 and verses 8. The Bible says, mm -hmm. quote, there is an appointed time for everything. And a time for every affair under the heavens, a time to kill and a time to heal, yep. a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Jess, I've got was intrinsically evil. The author yeah. of the Bible, Koholith, could not be saying those words inspired by God. Yeah, and I have a good example. So in law enforcement, as you know, there are times when a life must be taken by the police. We call it uh, justifiable homicide, right? Or, you know, when we when we have to take a life in order to preserve a life. Uh, so. But there are some who wrongly say, well, it's wrong to kill. Doesn't the Bible say thou shall not kill? No, the Bible doesn't say thou shall not kill. What the Bible says is thou shall not murder. And murdering is when you take a life unjustly. And a, a, a homicide may be just or it may be unjust. And so likewise, it is the same thing with a war. There is a time when wars are justified. And there are times when they're not. That's yeah. Then that's yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, for example, Paul, uh, I was talking to Father Mitch Paco while a couple of years ago, and I remember the conversation. He said, just for example, World War One in 1914, it was fought. It was fought because of an atheistic ideology and over 150 million people were killed by communists in the 20th century. He goes, yeah. we had to fight against that. And he goes in World War Two. He goes, that was fought over nationalism. German nationalism in order to see which country was more important than the other. And over 20 million people lost their lives to the Nazis. And so that's another uh, point in time where we had to step in. It was a just war. Uh, but uh, now, now my opinion about some of the recent wars, even in Desert Storm, I think that some of the more recent wars from, from Desert Storm to the present moment, I think we're entering into 
these prolonged wars that we can't win and there's no there's no goal of winning in mind you're not going to even in desert storm pope john paul ii talked to president bush george bush and george bush called him up from his from his lines right to the vatican right to the pope and he told him i'm going to i'm going to attack saddam hussein and i know i know this from insiders from vatican insiders and and bush insiders they heard the conversation. President Bush asked him, he says, uh, we're going to attack Iraq. Uh, we're going to take out Saddam Hussein. Pope John Paul II told him, I know, I know that Saddam Hussein is an evil man. He's a wicked man. But don't attack him because you're going to destabilize the Middle East. And what? And he goes, and Saddam Hussein, as bad as he is, he protects the Christians from the terrorists. And so George Bush said, well, Holy Father, he said, he told Holy Father, thank you for your, you know, uh, for your recommendations, but I'm still going to follow my gut feeling. We're going to go and we're going to attack Iraq. Well, guess what, mm. Paul? I sit yeah. back and I'm looking, I'm saying, wow, Pope John Paul II was right. He was right. We did destabilize the Middle East. And now we're, we're involved in these endless wars in the Middle East. Uh, yeah. But but I will so, say I, I'm going to speak on behalf of the soldiers, the, the the troops, the boots on the ground, the the young men and women that go out there. Uh, our country, the difference between our country and not and Nazi Germany or 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 the Soviet Union, Russia Soviet Union, is that even even in the Middle East in Iraq, we didn't go there as conquerors. We didn't go there to steal their oil. We went there as liberators. So there's a big difference in the use of force for liberation even if it was wrong-headed, than for the use of force for conquest like communists and Nazis do. That's my comment. Yeah, um, good comments. <laughs> Listen, um, again, there's a time, as, as the great Solomon taught us, there is a time for war. The problem is when we're, we're talking about what is a just war and what is not just, a lot of the wars that we're fighting in today's economy, so to speak, are in order to protect our national interests. Well, I'm not so sure this proxy war that we're fighting through uh, the Ukraine and Russia, I'm not so sure how much of our national interests are being protected there. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, no reflection on the, you know, on, on any of our troops per se. No. And thank yeah. God they're not they're not involved in that yet, but uh, President Biden has threatened that American soldiers may, you know, if Congress does not fund, fully fund the Ukraine, then American troops may have to fight. Um, uh, that's just another typical Joe Biden of trying to force Congress to do his bidding. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Paul, but I, I think the point of this article is that Pope Francis, his I think his next doctrine that he wants to try to eradicate or modify or white out, as they say, white out. He wants to, uh, it says here, quoting Pope Francis, it, uh, is war in itself a crime against humanity? No, the, this is Dr. Grandelsky. Such a statement is utterly alien to the Catholic world tradition. Which speaks of a just war. If there's if there is such a thing as a just war, war cannot be in itself evil. 
uh, let me go down to the next paragraph. There are circles. Oh, here it is. Here's the big, here's the big, uh, the main point of the article. There are circles in the Vatican and the broader church that want to scrap just war theory and identify the Catholic position with functional pacifism. Mm. Dr. Grindolsky says, I reject those efforts for two reasons. First, it would require the church to repudiate her 2,000-year-old teaching, declaring that what she once deemed just under certain conditions is no longer just. Second, it would deprive Catholic public officials of an ethical framework by which to engage in a defense of countries for which they are responsible, essentially making them morally incapable of preserving their, of preserving their nation's rights and freedom. No doubt the post Angelus remarks will be spun, focusing on, on the today, war today is a crime against humanity. But what is it about today that is novel in the history of warfare, when rendering war in itself unjust? Pope Francis does not tell us. He implies it sows death among civilians and destroys cities and infrastructure. Close quote. Hmm. We all know that. But if that is what makes war a crime against humanity, then there would never be any possibility of self-defense. The model of two armies marching out into the middle of a battlefield, stopping, sounding a trumpet, and then rushing each other disappeared, except in Narnia movies over 200 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I tell people, Jess, it's like being in law enforcement. Sometimes we have to use force. And every time we use force, it's ugly. And so um, it's not a pretty picture when we have to use force, but it is necessary sometimes. Yeah, and right. uh, it's the same thing with war. It's not pretty. Uh, and the Pope, the Pope said, doesn't understand that. The Pope doesn't yeah, understand that. Yeah. Again, um, I can't believe that we're sitting here and that we have a Pope that has taken these positions. I really don't. Uh, I'm, uh, as somebody once told me, he says, uh, I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree, but I am on the tree. <laughs> and I can see this, Jess, I, I can see this clearly. I don't have to have a, you know, be a uh, St. Thomas Aquinas in order to understand these. These are simple, basic truths that, that, that children can understand these concepts. And uh, so I just bring it all down to the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There are nefarious forces at work, Jess, that are continually, continuing to uh, attack what God and the church has built. Well, Paul, thanks a lot, brother. That's a wrap. Yep. You, yep. You've been listening to the Terry and Jesse show. Up next, who, who do we got up next, engineer? Richard. The Rosary up next. Thank you for joining us on the Terry and Jesse Show. Thanks, Paul, for filling in. We can always count on you. Welcome, Jess. Yeah, and remember, we're called to be great saints. Don't miss the opportunity. Set yourselves apart from this corrupt generation. Be saints. Amen. You weren't made to Amen. fit in. You were born to stand out. God bless you.